Check, check. Can you hear me? Okay. Sounds like you can. That's good. Uh, my name is Neil. I'm going to be your professor. And what you're listening to right now is the first in a series of lectures that I'm going to be doing as a podcast that's going to be a part of the class. And uh, now that I've said that, I'm going to play some intro music to kind of set the tone, and then we're going to go ahead and get into the lecture for today. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes. And Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Okay, I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself, churn. World serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. Speed it up and not speed. Grunt, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter with the fear of height. Down height. Wire and a fire represent the seven games. And a government for hire in a combat site. After wasn't coming in a hurry with the furies breathing down your neck. And team by team reporters baffled. Trump tethered crop. Look at that low plane. Fine. Then, uh-oh, overflow, population, common group, but it'll do. Save yourself, serve yourself, world serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed. Tell me with the rapture and the reverend and the right, right? You vitriotic, patriotic, slam fight, bright light, feeling pretty sight. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the So why did I use that as my uh, setting the tone introduction music? I am so glad that you asked. Uh, here's the reason why. So you're you're hearing this and recording this lecture in the uh, time of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, which has had a major impact on the way that we do all sorts of things, such as um, take, go to class and learn stuff, right? Um, uh, this thing kind of hit in the middle of the spring semester of 2020. And uh, when it hit, uh, everybody at first didn't know what to do, but then eventually what happened is uh, there was a general stoppage to most human activity and people started to do a lot more stuff from their homes. Students started to go to class from their homes and teachers like me, we started to teach classes from our homes. And, uh, I was teaching a bunch of classes at the time at Aurora University, and I needed to figure out a way to do that. And so one of the things that I thought might be helpful would be to record lectures as podcasts like this. That way the students in the classes could kind of like listen to those those lectures at times that were convenient for them, and uh, that would work out. I chose to do podcasts, which are, you know, audio-only things as opposed to videos, because... Um, one, I, I thought a video of um, my head talking at people would be super boring. And two, I wanted people to be able to listen to the lectures, you know, on their computer, on their tablet, on their phone, because they can listen to lectures then and, and do other stuff. Like you can listen to the lecture and walk your dog. You can listen to the lecture and run on a treadmill. You can listen to the lecture and fold laundry and all that. And again, you can kind of do it whenever you want to. So that was sort of the the reason I wanted to do things in that particular vein. Um and the, the song that you just heard is The End of the World as We Know It, which is a cover. It's a good cover, I think, right? Originally an R.E.M. song. Uh, that particular rendition is done by a band called The Night Game, in case you cared. And um, I, I really like the sentiment that that song expresses. Uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That sentiment is cool to me. Uh, I think that what you, me, and everybody that we know right now are living through is the end of a world as we knew it, right? Um, prior to COVID-19, 
you know, there was a whole bunch of norms that we kind of like took for granted. Maybe I, I think I took them for granted. I don't know about you, but I think I did. There was just things that we did and we just assumed or I assumed that they would more or less always be done that way for the duration of my life. And now it seems to me that that world, the world that I was rather familiar with and knew pretty well, seems to have come to an end. And uh, what's happening is some sort of new world is going to take its place. Uh, a new set of norms, a new way of being in the world is going to be there. And, uh, you know, the, the the line in that song is, it's the end of the world as I, we know it and I feel fine. Uh, that's the sentiment that I think is kind of, if you look at it in a certain way, optimistic and uplifting, right? So I don't know if you feel fine about all of this. Uh, some days I feel fine. Some days I feel a little bit less than fine. But right now, today, as I'm sitting down in front of this microphone and recording this, I would say that I feel pretty fine. So uh, having said all that, let's move on to the next thing. The next thing is the goals for this specific lecture that you're listening to right now. There are two goals for this specific lecture. Goal number one is to tell you a little bit about me, give you some background about who I am and how it is that I came to be a professor in this class that you're taking. And the second goal is to tell you a little bit about the class, not tell you everything about the class, but tell you enough about the class to make you feel hopefully somewhat oriented. So that, that's and that's it. Um, so this, this lecture is not going to be really, you know, content heavy, right? We're not going to be covering the stuff that you read for this week in this lecture. That's going to be in a different lecture, which is going to be released as a podcast a little bit later, uh, that you'll be listening to a little bit later. So about me, let me talk to you about me. So in addition to being a professor at the Aurora University School of Social Work, I do other things. Uh, I, I have a private practice where I do psychotherapy with individuals and couples, sometimes families, but mainly individuals and couples. And I am also a practicing psychoanalyst. Nowadays, there's not a whole lot of practicing psychoanalysts, right? You can find a lot of people who are therapists. It's a little bit harder to find somebody who's a psychoanalyst. Sometimes people think that psychoanalysts are like uh, leprechauns or unicorns or something like that. Like they don't actually exist, but they do. I can say that because I am one. And, um, I can speak about psychoanalysis, you know, from a, a place of experience. And I think that that's kind of important for you all to know. Be all that as it may, I was not always a psychotherapist. I was not always a psychoanalyst and I was not always a professor. I, you know, now I have a past and my past brought me to where I am now. I want to tell you a little bit about that past. So when I was a kid in, in high school, I was um, what, what some people might call a bad kid, uh, but I had a chip on my shoulder I I wanted to show the world, the man, that it couldn't keep me down. And that kind of animated a lot of the things that I did. When I went through school, I went in through you know middle school, high school, all that stuff. I was an okay student, but I was not a great student. And uh, I also came from a family that didn't have a huge amount of money available to them. But uh, as I kind of got towards the end of high school, I started to realize that I, I did want to go to college. I started looking around at different colleges, you know, kind of shopping around to figure out where it was that I wanted to go. Uh, I found some places I thought they looked cool. And 
I told my parents about them. I'm like, hey, I'm looking at, at these places. What do you think? And their reaction was, huh, that's interesting. Uh, if you can find a way to pay for that, you can totally do that. But, um, you know, if, if you're expecting us to pay for that, we're not going to be able to help you out. Uh, and so what ended up happening is the the only realistic option for me from an economic point of view was to go to community college, which is what I did. I went to the College of DuPage, and I was there for three years. Uh, it took me three years to get my associate's degree because the first year that I was there, I took classes in anything and everything that seemed like it might be interesting. So I took classes in like acting and photography and philosophy and astronomy. I thought astronomy would be really cool, stuff about stars. I took the class. I realized astronomy is actually a math class. It's not so much about stars. It's about math. That turned me off to astronomy. So I took a lot of classes just because I thought, you know, why not try this stuff out? And as I was doing that, I discovered that I really like history a lot. Uh, it was it was a cool subject for me. I, I really dug history. I think part of the reason that I really dug history was because I had a lot of questions about why the world was structured the way that it was. You know, I'd look around at the world and I'd see inequity. I'd see that there's a group of people over there and they have tons and tons and tons of stuff, more stuff than they need or want. And then you look over here and you see a different group of people, people who are struggling just to have like the basic things that they need in order to continue surviving. And I would see this breakdown and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like these people, they have more than they need. Those people over there don't have anywhere close to what they need. You know, why are things this way? How did they get to be this way? How did they, how is it that this way that things are that doesn't make sense came into being? And history ended up being something that I guess offered me some answers to those questions, or it seemed to, right? It gave me the story. It gave me the context, and I liked that. So I, I, uh, I found out at COD that I liked history. Three years later, I uh, got my associate's degree. And I transferred from COD to NIU, Northern Illinois University. I went there, again, because the price was right. It was something that was affordable. And uh, when I was there, I studied history. And one of the cool things about NIU at that time that I was there is that there was a lot of, it was, it had this kind of a nickname, the history department did, the little red schoolhouse on the hill. And it had that nickname because there was a whole bunch of um, Marxists who were professors there. Which meant that, you know, they, they kind of looked at things from the perspective of, of the left and uh, they taught from that perspective as well. And so that was something that I started to experience when I went to NIU. Because I went there, the history that I chose to study was labor history, the, the history of the working class and how the working class has responded to capitalism and mechanization and things like that. And that was really interesting. I got a degree in history and that took me two years. I stuck around at NIU for a third year because uh, with a degree in history, you know, you kind of look at your professional prospects and you, you start to recognize that there aren't as many as you would like there to be. And uh, I decided I wanted to, you know, be able to get some kind of a job. And so I took a third year to get teacher certified. And uh, I became a certified teacher. I could teach uh, six through 12. I could teach social studies in, in that age range. Then I went out into the world and I I tried to get a job as a teacher and that was somewhat difficult. Actually, there's a lot of people with degrees in history who are looking for jobs, becoming teachers. And so the, there was a, a huge supply of potential teachers and there was a, a low demand for potential teachers at the time that I, I went out. However, I was lucky 
and I did get a job. But my job wasn't working in a traditional school. It was working in a therapeutic day school. That was my first job out in the world, post-graduate, and with my, my bachelor's. I was working in these therapeutic day schools. And uh, at the time that I'm working in therapeutic day schools, I have a stepbrother. And my stepbrother has just finished the uh, MSW program at Aurora University. And he's become a school social worker. And he's also working in therapeutic day schools, right? Not the same one that I am, different ones. But we ended up talking a lot. And I would talk about the things that I was doing. And he would talk about the things that he was doing. And as we talked, I discovered that the things that he was doing seemed like they might be a little bit more interesting than some of the things that I was doing. It seemed like they might be more fun than some of the things that I was doing. And, uh, you know, I was considering getting a master's degree. I, I, for a long time, I was considering just getting a master's degree in history or in education or something like that. But then when I, I saw what my stepbrother was doing as a school social worker, I thought, you know what, maybe I actually want to be, maybe I want to be doing that. That seems pretty cool. I figured if I got a, a master's in social work, it opened up a series of doors that were currently closed to me. If I got a master's in history or in education, there was a set of doors that were already open to me, and maybe they opened a little bit wider because I had a master's degree, but it didn't open any new doors. So I thought, okay, I like options a lot. I, I'm going to go and get an MSW, and this will open a whole new set of doors. So I, I, I have the set of doors to teach in middle school or in high school. Those remain open, and now I open up a totally different set of doors. So I went to AU. You're going to AU. I went through the program that you're going through now, and uh, I graduated. And once I graduated with my MSW, I continued to work in therapeutic day schools, but uh, I sort of transitioned. I became an interesting guy because I could do the social worker stuff and I could do the teaching stuff. And I, I ended up um, working a lot once I've had my, my MSW. Man, I had a bunch of different jobs. I usually had like a main job that I was doing to earn the majority of the money that I earned. And then I had like a side hustle that I'd have to earn some extra money. One of my, my first side jobs was working in a substance abuse treatment center. I, I picked up that job over a summer when schools weren't needing me to work. And, and I thought it was a ton of fun. And I, I thought, man, this is great. I want to keep on doing this stuff. Uh, I started to do some therapeutic work, et cetera, et cetera. And I was doing that for a long time. Uh, and after, when I got done with my MSW, by the way, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know what? I'm so glad I'm finished this program. I did a bachelor's degree. I've done a master's degree. I am done. I am never, ever, ever under any circumstance ever going back to school because I am done. I don't want to ever go back. People might tell me I should go back. They can't make me. I'm not doing it. I'm done. That was my attitude when I finished my MSW. But then after working in the field for a couple of years, I, I found myself feeling like, you know what? Um... Maybe I spoke too soon about not going back to school. I kind of liked being in school. I kind of liked going to classes. I kind of liked reading interesting things. Huh. Maybe I want to go back to school. So I started to shop around for like uh, some kind of doctorate program, a PhD. I looked at PhD programs in psychology. I looked at PhD programs in social work. And I discovered there was these things called DSWs, Doctorate of Social Work. And I thought, well, what's that? I thought DSW was a shoe store. I didn't realize that it was an advanced degree. And uh, I looked into it, and I discovered that the DSW was a degree. It was an advanced degree, a doctorate, a terminal degree, but it was a degree which was aimed at people who were practitioners, people who wanted to not necessarily be researchers doing big R research, but people who wanted to be 
in the field doing things and stuff in the field, but kind of be at the top of their game doing things in the field. And I thought, okay, that sounds a little bit more like me. I kind of don't like research, but I do like knowing things. And so the DSW seemed like it would be an interesting degree. Um, shopped around, discovered that the Aurora University DSW program was pretty cool because it was A, affordable for me, uh, and B, it it met only on Saturdays, which meant that I could continue like working throughout the week. It wouldn't just like disrupt my work week. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Affordable uh, and doable from a time perspective. How great is this? And so I applied to be in the DSW program as I was working in a school and uh, also kind of like had a, like a small side gig doing some little bit of therapy. And I think I applied like, uh, I don't know, it was probably sometime around like February, February or March or something like that of the year uh, 2012. And, you know, the, the application process took time. You know, I had, I had to fill out the application, get letters of recommendation, blah, blah, blah turn all that stuff in. I had to go do an interview with the director of graduate studies because they, they, they're small cohorts that get into the program and stuff. So I did that. And then I was like, okay, I'll just kind of like wait to see what they tell me. And if they tell me that I, I'm not in, then I'll, I'll go somewhere else. Uh, and I kind of forgot about it. And then uh, fast forward a couple more months, the, the academic year comes to an end. And this is t- 2012. So this is a couple years after the big financial meltdown in 2008. And uh, I don't know if you, you all know this, so I'm, I'm, maybe you know this, but maybe you don't. Uh, schools, school districts primarily get the money that they use to run themselves through property taxes. So in 2008, the housing bubble like, you know, burst and went away. And there was a whole bunch of like foreclosures on homes and short sales and things like that, which drove property values down. And that happened in 2008, and then it, it takes a couple of years for that to catch up. But by 2012, basically, we'd had a number of years of property tax revenue falling, which meant that schools had significantly less money coming in. And, uh, you know, the, the academic year wrapped up in 2012, and everybody who worked at the school that I was working at, which was attached to the public school system in Bolingbrook, uh, it was like a therapeutic day school that kids from the public school system was were sent out to our schools and uh, we got our our funding from the school district and the school district got their funding from property taxes and property taxes had fallen and everybody knew this and you know there was a lot of belt tightening and things like that people were really concerned about budgets and one day there was a meeting that was called and uh, I was invited to this meeting with a bunch of other people and we we thought this isn't going to be good for us and sure enough it wasn't when we got to the meeting uh, we learned that the school district was low on money and they were cutting programs. And the program that I was a part of was getting cut. And so they were going to let us all go. I was losing my job. And, you know, the, the the guy who gave this news to me and a bunch of other people was like, I am so sorry to be telling you guys this. Nobody did anything wrong here. It really is an economic thing, not a personal thing. Uh, we wish we could keep you, but we just can't afford to, right? That's That's kind of where we're at. So I learned that. Um, and again, it wasn't a surprise. I kind of saw it coming. The other people who were in the room with me when we got this information, they'd seen it coming too. Uh, and I went and I packed up some stuff from the, the desk that I used and the room that I, I used. I brought it, was bringing those boxes out to my car and uh, I got a phone call. My phone's ringing. I answer it. It's the director of graduate studies at Aurora University. And he's telling me that I have been admitted to the DSW program if I, I want to be.
and when I, I heard this, when I got this call, I was thinking to myself, like, man, this, this is a bad time. This is a bad time to do a doctorate. I just lost my job. I don't have any income. I don't know where I'm going to get another job. Huh. This is a really, really bad time to do this. And then right after thinking it was a really, really bad time to do it, I thought, it's probably never going to be a good time to do this. The, the idea of there being a good time to do something hard, that doesn't exist. That good time never presents itself. It's a fiction. And so I thought, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I'll quit. I'll stop. So I said, yeah, yeah, dude, I want to I do this. I'll, I'll, I'll be there for the first class. And he's like, great, we'll email you the syllabus, blah, blah, blah. And so I, uh, I got the syllabus. I, uh, I mentioned, I think, a little bit ago that I was doing the like little bit of therapeutic work. I decided to kind of throw myself into that to go full-on private practice, give that a shot. It was something I'd been thinking about doing for a long time, and I, now was a good time to do it. So I did that, you know, I went full-on in, like, let's, let's just be a therapist, right, and make my money that way. Uh, so I did that. I actually... I called the guy who was the director of graduate studies back a couple days later and said, hey, by any chance, is there any opportunity to do some adjunct teaching? And he said, send me your resume. I did. We sat down. We talked. He said, yes, you can adjunct teach some classes. I did. So I got some money coming in from adjuncting. I got some money coming in from doing therapy. And I did that. And I finished the DSW program. It was awesome. One of the best things I ever did. One of the reasons, uh, in addition to opening up a whole bunch of cool professional opportunities for me that made it one of the best things I ever did is that it also introduced me to psychoanalysis in a really serious way. What, in the first class that I took in, in the DSW program, one of the very first texts that we had to read was Sigmund Freud's The Introductory Lectures to Psychoanalysis. Now, I came to that book thinking that I knew a couple of things about Freud because I'd you know, gotten an MSW, I, and, and who doesn't know who Freud is in some way, right, at this day and age? So I thought I knew some stuff about Freud, but I'd never read Freud's writings themselves. I'd always had been reading people writing about Freud. I'd never read Freud in the raw. And then I, in this class, I started to, I started to read Freud in the raw and I was like blown away by this. I remember reading these introductory lectures to psychoanalysis where Freud is talking about the way that repression works and the way that these things called parapraxies work. And I was super interested. I thought this is, this is ultra fascinating stuff. Where has the, why have I not read this before? I'm going around to my friends being like, Hey, have you have you ever read Freud? And and they're saying to me like, well, yeah, kind of like, and they they'd read something in like a psychology class in college. I'm like, no, no, have you ever read like Freud? Freud? Have you ever read Freud? The stuff that he wrote. And most people were saying, everybody was saying, no, they hadn't. And I'm like, you really need to read Freud. I was I was really into it. And reading that book kind of started my um, deep interest in psychoanalysis, which is an interest that you'll learn over the next couple of weeks. It's an interest that has continued to be a consistent interest in my life for now more than a decade. It, it has been awesome for me. So that was, that was something that happened to me. So that kind of talks you through my educational history and my introduction to psychoanalysis, um, which I guess brings us to today, here and now. Today, I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm a psychoanalyst. I would say that the work that I do kind of takes place at a specific intersection the intersection of psychoanalysis and social work and critical theory specifically is kind of where I think I do most of my work. Uh, what I, to imagine that, if you imagine like, uh, imagine a line, a horizontal line going from left to right, 
say that that line represents the street that is psychoanalysis. Now, in the middle of that, draw a vertical line going up and down. That, that's, that street is the street of social work, right? And, and they kind of come together. And now draw like a cross-section, right? Something going from, say, like the lower left to the upper right diagonal line. That is like Critical Theory Avenue, where all of those uh, streets come together. That's where my thinking and working takes place. And um, it's a fun place to be. I'm going to hopefully share some of that with you over the next couple of weeks, and, and maybe you'll decide that that's an interesting place for you to be. Maybe you'll decide it's not an interesting place for you to be either or is fine with me. Uh, but that's kind of, that's me. That's that's who I am. That's where I am today. The last thing that I want to tell you about me is, it has to do with my kind of loyalty commitment to social work, right? I talked about psychoanalysis a second ago. Let's talk about social work for just a, a few minutes here. I really like social work. I dig being a social worker. I, when I, I started, when I, in the story that I told you, I mentioned that I did an MSW. What I didn't mention is that I didn't just decide to do an MSW. I looked around. I considered getting a degree in psychology or in counseling or one of the other kinds of like uh, kind of mental health disciplines that exist out there. And I picked social work. And I picked social work purposefully because I really liked the history of social work. Again, I, I had studied history through college. I'd been a history major. History was important to me. I looked at the history of social work and in the history of social work, I saw a really cool story. I saw a story that to me looked like this. Um, At one point in time, back in the day, there was a group of people, I'm going to call them the people who had all the power, right? There were, there were rich people. There were, there were people who had tons and tons and tons of power. Uh, Earlier, I talked about the people who had more than they needed. Those are the people with power. I talked about the people who didn't have enough of what they needed. Those are the people that were everybody else. And the story of social work was that um, social workers looked out into the world and what they saw very often is that the people who had the power had put on these gnarly pairs of boots and they'd gone out and they'd found somebody who didn't have power and they'd knocked that person down and they'd stomped on that person's neck. They'd put their boot on that person's neck. This is all a metaphor, of course. This isn't literal, right? Um, the point of that metaphor is that the powerful were basically, they're, they're the people who in my metaphor are wearing boots and they're taking their big boots and they're putting, which are their power, and they're putting them on the necks of people who don't have power. And social workers were the people who saw this and they were outraged. They were mad about that situation. They didn't like it. And rather than just being mad, rather than just not liking it, social workers were the people who decided we got to do something about this. This is unacceptable. This is untenable. This is wrong. That's what they thought. And they went out and they started to work with the people who had boots on their neck. They worked with them to get the boots off their neck. They, they aligned themselves with the people who were oppressed, with the people who lacked power. And they said, let's take on the people who do have power. Let's, let's push them away from us. Let's get these boots off your neck. And I thought that was a really cool idea. I thought that was a really cool story. The story of those who lacked power taking on those who had power and were using it irresponsibly. I'm like, what a cool story. That's a story I want to be a part of.
sorts of fired up about that. And I, I stayed fired up about that. But, you know, after I got my MSW and went out into the field, I started to realize something. I started to look around at what social workers were doing. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. This doesn't look like the story that really fired me up. This doesn't look like the story that captivated me. What I'm seeing is different. How is it different? So in, in the story that I liked, social workers were taking on the corrupt police. They were taking on the hospitals. They were taking on that that weren't letting people in. The hospitals were saying like, no, you can't come in here. And the social workers were like, oh no, they're going in there, right? Like that, that's what you would see. Basically, you saw these individuals and these institutions that had power and social workers were in a sense kind of like fighting them, pushing against them, trying to make them more accountable, more responsible people and institutions. That was the story. But when I looked around in the present, what I noticed was that social workers were working, were now working for the very institutions that had the power and in many instances might not, not have been using it in the most appropriate ways. Social workers were working for the state. They were working for the hospitals. They were working for the governments and, and for uh, these, these places that had power. And so it was weird. It seemed to me not not every social worker, mind you, right? But but quite a few social workers went from being the kinds of people who sort of like uh, went around looking for people who had their boots on people's necks and and you know pushed those people away so that there was no longer boots on necks. They went from doing that to being the people who were wearing the boots. And I thought that's that's not cool. And that's a, a thing that's important to me. It doesn't have to be important to you. You're never going to have to need to know that, like for a quiz or for a test or anything for this class. But it's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of how I view social work. And since I'm trying to introduce you to me, I thought that I would tell you that story. And uh, now I've told it. And so you've learned some stuff about me. Let's move on to the next bit of this podcast lecture. you've noticed this, but this fall semester is starting off in a way which is a little different than the way that any other fall semester has ever started before, at least during my lifetime, and I'm assuming during yours. Uh, this fall semester, instruction is being done remotely, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit now about what that means. First thing that I want to say right off the bat is that even though we're doing classes remotely, I'm going to do my best to be as available, possibly even more available to you than I would be if we were doing classes face-to-face. What do I mean by that? Uh, when I teach classes in a face-to-face -face format, what happens a lot of times, you know, class will start, we'll do stuff, class will come to an end. And as class comes to an end, students will like approach me at the end of class and they'll have questions about different things and stuff or they just want to know more about something they didn't want to necessarily ask during the class. So they wait till after the class and they come up and they ask me. Uh, additionally, you know, I have regular office hours 
and students will come to my office to get help with their writing or to ask a question about anything, right? And I really like it when students do that. It's one of the really enjoyable things about being a professor is having an opportunity to uh, be helpful to people in that way. But when we're teaching classes remotely, obviously those things can't happen in that way. But I can still be really available. So the the first thing that I want to say to you is uh, if at any point during this semester you have a question, you have a concern, you have something that you want to bring to my attention, please, please, please don't feel shy about sending me an email or picking up the phone and and calling me. I prefer email. I kind of tend to get that faster than I do phone calls. But if you prefer phone calls, feel free to make a phone call. My phone number's on the syllabus for the class. If you do send me an email, I am going to do my very best to read your email and respond to you as quickly as I can right? I think it's really important for me to say this out loud and very explicitly. You all spend a ton of time, a ton of energy, and a ton of money to get this education. Because you spend a ton of time, a ton of energy, and a ton of money to get this education, you are entitled to my attention. If you send me an email, uh, please don't assume that you're bothering me. I say that because I can't tell you how many times students have sent me an email saying, I'm sorry to bother you. You're not bothering me. You're not bothering me if you're sending me an email. I want you to send me emails for any reason, questions, concerns, whatever. Send me an email. You're not bothering me if you do that. I will read it and I will get back to you as quickly as I can. I know that sometimes um, professors are not really, um, at least in my experience as a student, this was a long time ago, maybe that's why, but when I was a, a student, if I would send a professor an email, sometimes I wouldn't hear back from them for like a pretty long time. I don't do that. If you send me an email, I will get back to you. I'll get back to you quickly. If you want to talk about something and an email is not the best way to do it, if you want to schedule a time to talk on the phone, we can talk on the phone. If you want to schedule a time to do a Zoom meeting, we can do a Zoom meeting. And if you really, really want to schedule a time to meet face-to-face at the Orchard Center, we can do that too. You just need to let me know that that's what you want to do and we can set that up. We'll have to go to a place, wear masks and all that, but we can do that. Um, so that's the, the first thing that I wanted to say about remote instruction. The second thing I want to say about remote instruction is that, uh, you know, I've taught a number of classes now over the summer. I taught two classes from start to finish completely remotely. And what I learned by teaching classes that way is that they can be good, but for them to be good, everybody has to be involved. I have to be involved. I have to put in energy. I have to put in time. I have to like, you know, bring energy to the class, but I also need you all as students to bring energy to the class to not just kind of like click the link and then sit there and be kind of passive. I, I need you all to be active and I need to be active. We all need to be active. So when I teach in a remote format, you know, I, I record these podcast lectures beforehand. I want everybody to listen to them beforehand. I assign readings. I want you to do the readings. And then when we meet as a class, I'll start class off usually with some kind of a question or some kind of a provocation that I want people to respond to. I'll let people volunteer to respond first. If nobody volunteers to respond, I'll start calling on people randomly. And uh, eventually people get it. They, they start to understand that the, during the class they're going to be expected to speak, and then they, they start speaking. I bring that up because I guess I just want to make it super, super clear that even though we're doing class remotely, that doesn't mean that there'll be kind of like less involvement from me. And it doesn't mean that there will be less involvement from you. In some cases, there might even be more involvement from each of us 
because of the remote instruction, but we're all going to be really involved here. You got that? Groovy. Um, so the last thing I'll say then, I guess, before I wrap up here is make sure you take a look at the syllabus for the class. The syllabus outlines the assignments, what you need to do, how you need to do it, when you need to do it. If you take a look at that, you got any questions, you can ask your question when we meet as a class for the first time. Or as I said, you can send me an email with your question. My email address is C as in cat, Gorman, G-O-R-M-A-N at aurora.edu. Um, and that's it. Well, I'll stop talking now and let you all get on with whatever it is that you're going to be doing next. And I look forward to meeting you all when we meet later on this week. Till then, take care and make some glorious mistakes. <laughs>